Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Today we're beginning a four-part series refuting Catholicism. We're going to look at the core claims of Roman Catholicism, specifically as they relate to the gospel and that all-important claim that the Roman Catholic Church has to its authority. And we'll examine these claims from scripture and with historical insights, and it's going to end up being really, really important that we pay attention to what history has to tell us about this issue. Now, I know this is a controversial topic, and it's so divisive that I want to get started by explaining why I'm doing this and giving you guys the two wrong ways to approach the issue, and then what I think is the right way to approach this issue. So if you're a Catholic, I just want you to know I'm not attacking you, and I hope you'll just hear me out. All right, let's get started. There's there's the one side where we demonize Catholicism, and it's just make it as ugly as possible. I mean, think about this. If someone looked into your history and only took the bad things you've said and the bad things you've done and then presented that as if that was an accurate representation of you, you would have no friends. I mean, everybody would think that you were Hitler, basically. And this perspective of Catholicism is inappropriate. In fact, it approaches prejudice. And it's kind of like like bigotry against against Catholicism and Catholics. Um, more importantly, it's not actually accurate. You you can't just say everything that is possibly negative about Catholicism, ignore the other sides of the issues, and then act like that's a correct representation of Catholicism. So I don't want to go to this this issues to to avoid this, which I've seen people do. Um, I'm not going to focus on atrocities of past popes, which I could spend the whole time on if I wanted, but I don't want to focus on that because I don't think that things that a pope did necessarily represent Catholicism, and Catholics don't either, and so I'm not going to try to emphasize that. I'm not going to focus on a survey of history only for bad examples of Catholicism or relatively unimportant differences between Christians and Catholics. I'm not going to focus on obscure things happening in some, like, third world country where this one random person says this and that and they happen to be Catholic, I don't think that represents the whole church. So I'm not going to focus on those things at all. What I am going to do, in fact, is I'm going to point out what we agree on. I'm going to start there. I'm going to talk about what we agree on, what us Christians, biblical evangelical Christians and Catholics would agree on so that we can be careful to accurately understand Catholicism. And the last thing I'll do to avoid the attack position is I'm going to be very careful to accurately represent Catholic teaching. I don't want to take something one guy said and try to blow it into something a little different than what they actually believe. I want to be very careful to accurately represent Catholicism. Now on the other side, that's the attack side, the defense side. Oftentimes I hear people bring up Catholicism and they only ever say good things about it. And they have an equally distorted view of Catholicism and Catholicism is just all pretty and it's all roses and basically we, we are, we're the same. They just like stained glass and robes and other than that, there's really no differences between Christians and Catholics. And um, sometimes these people have Catholic friends or they have Catholic family and they see any criticism of Catholicism as an attack on their friends and family. So they can't differentiate between Catholicism and Catholics. And we'll do that today. We'll talk about that issue. Um, this is not unlike the homosexual issue we just talked about in the last four-week series. It, in fact, it, you, if you disagree with Catholicism, now you're a bigot. And this is what I deal with as I, as I told people, hey, I'm doing a series on Catholicism. And they were like, oh, 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 you're going to be mean, aren't you? You're going to say horrible, mean things, and you're going to misrepresent, and you're going to attack, and you're going to die. And I'm like, 
why do you assume that about me? Like, I'm, I'm just going to try to be very careful and thoughtful in how I do it. And they're like, we don't believe you. I mean, it's, this is kind of the impression I have from certain people. And I'm just like, okay, well, there's, you know, my conclusion is there's not much I can do to convince them of what I'm really going to do. So I'll just do what I'm going to do and they'll, they can believe what they're going to believe about it. I don't know what else to say. Um, if you disagree with, with you know, homosexuality, then you're a bigot and a homophobe. Well, then if you disagree with Catholicism, you're a bigot and a Catholophobe or whatever, you, whatever the term would be for that. I have no idea. This is a constant problem nowadays. I think it's kind of a cultural thing. Um, there was a ministry that I, um, I once uh, was aware of. Uh, actually, we, we got to do worship for them. They did a, um, a conference and it, their ministry is called Life Water. And what these people do is they go into Africa and they would dig wells and they would teach people uh, rain catching techniques and water storage techniques and stuff like that for people. But one of the biggest obstacles this ministry had came with education. I mean, the people are happy for you to dig a well, but they tend to still go to that same water hole they've been going to for a long time, which animals are pooping and peeing in and things like that, and so it has bad bacteria in it. LifeWater, the representative said, one of our most difficult things is teaching people who have never used a microscope and things like this, teaching them that their water has invisible things in it that can hurt them. This was like a, a difficult thing for them to communicate. They said, we, <clears throat> we have this major obstacle of convincing them that the water they have always drunk is dangerous. What do you mean? We're fine. Never mind that their child is sick. Never mind that diarrhea is just a normal way of life. You know, Never mind that there are issues that are ongoing chronic issues. But this is what we've always done, so it must be fine. Nobody, though, calls life water a bigot ministry, a, a, a dirty water phobic ministry. Nobody calls them that because they're like, no, look, we'll show you the real issues with this water you're consuming that hurts you. That hurts you. And they're like, we're fine. They go, no, you're hurting. Trust us. You're hurting. <laughs> you're not okay. Because the goal they have is to help people and their focus is truth. They're not just trying to scare people. They're trying to help people. And yeah, that involves scaring them a little bit about the water they're drinking. And their focus is truth. And so can I say this? Can I have the benefit of the doubt as we go into differences between Catholicism and Christianity that my goal is to help and my focus will be truth? And if, I'm, if that's not the case, then you'll find out as we go. But just give me the benefit of the doubt, if you don't mind, in our, you know, all is fair and, and no one's wrong and don't judge society. Um, for me to say, hey, maybe there's something in the water that Catholics have been drinking for years and years and years that is actually harmful to them. And it could be the nicest, kindest thing I can do to try and say, hey, how about you drink out of this well instead? This well's pure. This well's not tainted with those things. <clears throat> so I don't want to act like these defenders who act as though we have no significant issues between Catholicism and the Bible. There are huge significant issues. It's unbiblical. If I say Catholicism's all okay and there's no real big differences, I am actually betraying the word of God. And I may as well be taking, you know, you know, E. coli and throwing it into the into the into the camp, so to speak, that's going to, that's E. coli is bad, right? I'm, I'm remembering the right one. <laughs> I'm a blue cheese. No, no, that's the rest. That's good. That's the wrong. There are huge amounts of the Bible, huge, huge portions of the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that were written specifically to counter 
false teaching. Most of Jeremiah, most of it, one of the major prophets, constantly he's dealing with the false prophets, and he's like, hey, hear my word. You know, the epistles, so many of the epistles are written specifically because of false teaching. Galatians was specifically written for this purpose. 1 Corinthians, specifically to counter false teachings and false beliefs in the church. We just get book after book that was written for that very purpose. First Peter, he wrote for the same thing. In other words, can I say this? God confronts false teaching unapologetically. He confronts false teaching the same way you would confront a stranger picking up your child and starting to walk away. Swiftly. <laughs> With no embarrassment or feeling like you're in the wrong, you'd be like, hey, stop. That's wrong. And that's how God confronts false teaching. We do not have any examples of God ignoring false teaching or encouraging us to do it either. In Isaiah 8.20, it says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So Isaiah is telling us, when you hear teaching, go double check it with the law and the testimony, the Bible. And if it's not consistent with the scripture, then don't listen to what they say. That's what we're told to do. This is what God commands us to do. In the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, it tells us this, test all things, hold fast that which is good. Test everything, but hold fast that which is good. And so I need to have this attitude towards Catholic doctrine because Catholic doctrine has a large, a large amount of additional teachings that are not found in the Bible that I must test and then decide whether to keep or, or reject. Now, you might go, why am I singling out Catholicism? And I would say simply for this reason. There are approximately 1.2 billion Catholics on earth today. If there were seven Catholics, and one of them was the Pope, and three of them were bishops, and then the other three were, I don't know, one was a priest and the other two were just tithers or something, I don't know. <laughs> then nobody would care, okay? You would just be like, yep, yeah, that's that strange group over there. But there are 1.2 billion Catholics around this world. We all know Catholics. Everyone, everyone in the room here, we all know Catholics. I know Catholics. I have friends that are Catholics. I have family that are Catholics. I care about them. I love them. And because of this, I need to test the water that they're drinking to look at it and say, because I care, I want to see. I want to test it and see if you should hold fast to it. Um, while being friendly, the defenders of Catholic, the Christian defenders of Catholicism that says, oh, we're all just brothers, can't we all just get along? While being friendly, it serves to help people adopt and, and continue to hold false beliefs. While being friendly to people, it betrays God. We do not have the option of letting go of the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. If Catholicism is true, you and me and our entire church need to stop, repent, and become Catholic and come under the authority of the Pope. We need to do this. If it is false, then we need to expose it, and we need to hold our ground that much more firmly for the sake of the Catholics that are involved in it. So to avoid this defensive position, as, a, as I'm going to avoid the attacking, also to avoid defending, I'm going to make clear where we disagree. 
I am going to focus on the areas of disagreement. I'm not going to uh, unilaterally just stick to that, but I'm going to focus a large part on those things uh, where the Bible and Catholicism in particular depart, which is a lot of stuff. We disagree on very significant issues. I'm going to follow the example of Jesus and the apostles who did not ignore controversy or even attempt to avoid it, who did not ignore or avoid areas where they disagree with the religious ideas of people around them, but they did the opposite. Jesus, he literally picks the hot topics of major disagreement on important issues and makes that the issue that he's going to speak on. He purposely goes into the controversy, not because it's controversial, because it's important because it's important. And so we need, we need to do the same thing. Um, and I can say pastors in particular need to do this. So let me read to you 1 Timothy 1.3. He says, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, speaking to uh, Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. No other doctrine. No other stuff. Just what, what has already been taught. Teach that. Nothing else. Nothing new. But the Catholic Church is full of other doctrine. Chock full of hundreds and even, at this point, thousands of years of additions to the scriptures. It is so similar to the Pharisees when you look at it in detail. The Pharisees had added massive amounts. I mean, they had more important writings that were not the Bible than they did that were the Bible. And the Catholicism is much the same way with its 20, 21 ecumenical councils and uh, countless papal bulls and, and all this other stuff that, that, as a Catholic, I don't know how you would even wrap your head around all this information. Um, Catholic theologians, I think, are even uh, have a much harder job than Christian <laughs> theologians who just have the Bible because they, we, we got, here's, there's my book. And they got the Bible and they've got all the ecumenical councils and they got all the statements from the different popes and the different church fathers and the countless pages of all that stuff that they're supposed to read and understand and factor it all in. So before we dig into all the differences and similarities, I want to make one thing clear, and that was kind of the focus for tonight, is there's a difference between Catholics and Catholicism. Some of you understand this already and you don't even need me to say it, but I need to say it because I need to get it out there. <laughs> there's a difference between Catholics and Catholicism. And if you understand this, then you will never, ever think that I'm attacking Catholics. So let me explain. Catholicism is a certain thing. I can generalize about Catholicism. It has very specific doctrines. It is an exact thing. You can pin it down. You can paint it. You can put it in a box. You can give it a label. You can write a book about it. This is Catholicism. I can limit it. I can define it. This is a good thing. It makes Catholicism, while it's a big subject and it's a complicated subject, it is, it is a certain thing. This is Catholicism. So I can address it. I could pull it apart. I could you know, take it apart, compare it to the Bible, and look at it and all that sort of thing. However, Catholics are not Catholicism. Catholics are unique individuals. I can't generalize about a Catholic because every Catholic I've met is a, is a unique person. I can't put them in a box, and I can't give them just one little label and assume that they're all the same. A large amount of Catholics have beliefs that differ from Catholicism. I mean, the majority, the majority of Catholics have beliefs that differ from Catholicism. Do you know on birth control, a survey said that 78% of Catholics said they support the use of contraceptives. But the Catholic Church is unanimous on this. Contraceptives are wrong. You are not allowed to use contraceptives. No, no form of birth control is okay. But 78% of Catholics think it is. 
What am I saying? They're not, they don't all agree. Perhaps the Catholic you talk to thinks confession to a priest is totally unnecessary. And you're scratching your head going, that's totally not Catholicism. But that doesn't matter because you're talking to them, not Catholicism. Perhaps the Catholic you talk to thinks that he is saved by grace alone apart from works. Good. That's not Catholicism, but you should find out if that's the guy you're talking to. Maybe the Catholic you're talking to believes in reincarnation and thinks she was an African princess in a previous life. I would love to find out how many Catholics believe in reincarnation, because I'll bet you it's more than a few. Why? Because Catholics are people, and Catholicism is an ism. And an ism is a specific thing, but people are individuals, and they can agree or disagree with Catholicism. The vast majority of Catholics don't even know as much Catholic doctrine as you're about to know when we're done with this little series. So I cannot limit them. Even priests and individual parishes may differ from official Catholic doctrine. And this I've got to understand. So I beg you, please hear the difference in how I speak. Mostly, I'm going to talk about Catholicism. Today is one of the only times I'm just going to talk about Catholics. And please imitate this. Because this is the issue we'll do with we'll, when we approach Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, or Islam, or anything else. When I deal with Islam, I'm not dealing with my Muslim neighbor who maybe thinks that jihad is the worst idea ever. I need to find out from him who he is and what he believes and what he thinks and talk to him one-on-one. -on -one. But I can still make a ruling on Islam based on its official teachings and doctrines and the stuff that comes from the Quran and what Muhammad did and the Hadith and all that sort of thing. So there's a difference between Catholics and Catholicism. How do I interact with Catholics? I need to ask them questions. Lots and lots of questions on important issues. Um, I would say Mariology is not as important as justification, how I'm saved. And so I would want to focus on the important issues, but ask them questions. I think questions are your greatest asset in witnessing to people. You find out what people think by asking them questions. You also get them to think by asking them questions. You can actually make people think with questions. Right? What did you eat for lunch today? And now you're thinking, well, what was I? What did I eat lunch? Oh, yeah. You just, you make people think by asking them questions. Jesus did this all the time. Who do men say that I am? Hmm. Now I, now I got to think about this important issue. So the same thing is true about Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and even Christians. I meet a Christian. I don't assume that they actually believe Christian doctrines. I don't assume they don't. I just ask them questions and find out. You'd be surprised the types of things you hear from Catholics. Christians, Mormons, whoever. I once spoke to a priest after a funeral that I was at, and I asked him as he was just kind of hanging out, I said, hey, can I ask you a question? He said, what? I said, I'm curious to know, what made you decide to be a priest? You see, I'm really curious because I've never thought about, like, I'm going to take a vow of celibacy so that I can I can do this for God. Like, that's a huge issue, right? You're going to take, it's a huge vow. You're a vow of poverty. You're basically property of the church. You go where they tell you to go. You're going to live in poverty. They supply your needs. You're just your needs, not up and above and beyond them necessarily. And, um, and you'll never be married. And so I said, what made you want to become a priest? And he looks and he goes, huh, I never thought about that. And I was just shocked. I was like, here I would have thought he'd be like, well, the Catholic Church is the one true church, and da 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 and God told me that. No, it was like, he never thought about it before. I think his mother probably just decided when he was a little boy, this one's going to be a priest. And then they raised him to be a priest, and they got him involved, and this and that, and this and that, and then it just kind of like his life was decided for him. And he came from the Philippines, and then he ended up being stationed here in America, and that's where I met him.
Wouldn't have known that unless I asked him about it. Interesting. So ask him questions. So if, if Catholics are so unique, if they're not necessarily the inventors of the ism, and they're not necessarily the preachers of the ism, because those who are preaching it are different than those who simply have been taught it. And if they're not these things, then what are they? Well, many times they're the victims of the ism. They're, they're the ones we want to rescue out of this, to pull them out of that fire. Save them from this, this thing that's just not good for them. So why do I need to know about the ism? Because I need to honestly evaluate the isms of the world to accept or reject their religious teachings. I also need to realize this ism does impact this person. And many of the things they do believe will line up with the ism, if not all. I also need to know it because it will inform me on how to help them. In whatever ways they agree with Catholicism, after this, you should be able to interact with them on that particular topic. And if they disagree with Catholicism, you can at least be like, yeah, wow, yeah, you're not even Catholic on that one. I remember talking to a Mormon in, uh, in Utah, and we did a mission trip out there for about, I don't know, an hour or so. And at the end of about 30, 40 minutes, I started to tell him, yeah, you're not a Mormon. And he was like, what? And I go, well, Mormon doctrine is this, 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 and you believe this, this, this. This is Christian doctrine. And I said, now, if you're being honest with me, you can't possibly be Mormon. The only way you're still Mormon is people don't know you believe this. And he was like, well, you know. <laughs> and so it was a really interesting conversation after finding out what he believed, that it was not Mormon doctrine about the identity of God, the identity of Jesus, how salvation is achieved. These were all biblical perspectives he had. And it wasn't just a trick uh, of definitions of words. I understand all that. Uh, we talked about that stuff. But very interesting. Very interesting. So you can at least point out to them where they do and don't believe. Uh, a friend of mine had a real issue with Catholic priests, the idea that he had to confess to priests. And so I was like, yeah, well, that's not in the Bible. I mean, challenge anyone to show me where that is in the Bible. It's not there. There's no teaching in the scripture that says you have to confess to a special uh, cast of person in order to be forgiven. And this person is a priest, and they're ordained by the church in Rome, and their papal authority going down and down and down into their lives. N none of that is in the scripture and stuff. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah, let me show you where the Bible says we're all priests. And I take him to it and stuff, and he was like, yeah, that's what I thought, you know, <laughs> and it was, it was encouraging to him because he felt embarrassed having to always go and talk to this guy and tell him everything he did wrong and stuff like that, and, and um, it's not necessary, um, not in that way. So I want to know about the ism, but let me give you guys, if I can, now that I think that makes sense, right, the, the difference between Catholics and Catholicism. If you understand that, then you're not really worried as you step into a study of Catholicism. You realize I'm not studying Catholics. Good luck. I don't know. How do you study Catholics? They're all different. Surveys. Yeah, surveys. I don't know. <laughs> We're going to study Catholicism. That's a specific thing. Um, so I want to give you some advice. Um, I'm starting where I, where I was going to end originally. Um, I'm going to start with advice on how to talk to Catholics. So a few pointers that I think we can go into before we talk about all the theological differences. Here's some, here's some good advice for not only talking to Catholics, but probably anybody who disagrees with, with our beliefs. Um, one of the things is this. You've got to define terms. You've got to define terms beyond the use of slogans. For example, um, the term grace and works mean different things in Catholicism than they do in biblical Christianity. So when you say we're saved by grace, the Catholic will be like, yes, we are. They say apart from works. And they'll go, well, I mean, you get born again by grace apart from works. And they go, yeah, so we agree. And they go, yeah, but you need works to be saved all the way. Huh? 
And so you have to start to define terms a little bit and explain things and ask questions beyond a slogan. What do you mean by grace? What do you mean by works? What do you mean by faith or um, by the phrase born again? Um, for instance, in Catholicism, born again is an event that happens at baptism that doesn't result in a, in a, in a transformative experience in life. It's just that's what happens when you get baptized. So every Catholic who was baptized as an infant was born again at however many days old they were when they got baptized. That's Catholic teaching on that. That's born again. So if, so if someone's familiar with Catholic doctrine, you say, are you born again? They're like, of course I am. Every Catholic's born again. And then the Christians go, wait a minute. I thought born again meant your eyes are now open to spiritual things. You have an active relationship with God. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a transformative experience of a new life in Christ. And you can see the difference. And they're like, what? No, it's baptism. Oh, so now you see there's a difference. Big difference between born again, uh, I think, in the biblical sense and born again in the, in the Catholic sense. So, you know, think beyond the slogans, actually define terms and ask questions and that sort of thing. Uh, listen in if you hear, why is it that we agree but we don't agree? It's probably because of a terminology issue. We're both saying the same thing, but we both mean different things by it. Also, if I can remind you, you're a missionary. You're a missionary. Missionaries have a mission. Evangelism. I want to see this Catholic person come to Christ. Whether or not they already know Christ, I don't know yet. But I want to see them come to Christ. I want to know that they know Christ. I want to see more people in the kingdom of God. Your goal is their salvation. It's not just to prove them wrong. Now, if you're debating a Catholic in public and you have an audience, your goal is their salvation. You will almost never convince the public debate person. Public debates are for the audience, not for the debaters. But if it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, it's different than if it's a public debate kind of thing. It's very much more outreach, 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 outreach. And then public debate is put, every, put the differences on display so that people can make informed decisions. Um, if you would, turn in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2. This passage has so informed me constantly when it deals with how to disagree and interact with people. Um, it keeps me calm, keeps me careful. And I hopefully keeps me as a good witness. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. So one piece of advice I'll give is your missionary active activities towards Catholic or Catholically influenced people is don't argue about ultimately unimportant issues. I used to have a buddy when I worked at In-N-Out for two and a half years and ate lots and lots of double-doubles. Um, I was a lot younger back then. Um, as we all were, <laughs> when you think about it. Um, and so there I am working at In-N-Out, flipping burgers, whatever, and he's, he comes up and he would daily, every day I'd see him, he's like, hey, Mike, let's talk about this. And he was Catholic, and I, he knows I'm, I'm Christian, evangelical Christian. You could say we're Protestant, although I'm not actually protesting anything in particular, but, but you, we're of the Protestant tradition, yeah. And so um, he's like, Mike, let's talk about this today. Let's talk about confession to priests. Let's talk about Mary today. But the day he came up and was like, let's talk about Mary. And I was just like, don't, I don't really want to talk about Mary right now. You know, I just thought, like, I don't see the fruit of this particular moment, of this particular discussion. Ask yourself, what's the point before you in, enter into a discussion about a particular topic? Is it even worth talking about right now? That's a healthy thing. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Here's a thought. If I win them on this issue, what have I actually won? What have I actually won? Let's say the Apocrypha is the issue. And you win them on the Apocrypha. 
And then they finally back off the Apocrypha and they go, okay, well, maybe the Apocrypha doesn't belong in the Bible. Maybe these extra books are just like good to read and they're healthy to read. And I'm like, great, I just did all that and all I got out of him was, okay, but they're still good to read. Like, oh, you know, I want more. I want him to know the grace of Christ. So I want to focus on justification. I'm not going to worry about the clothes that priests wear. Stick to one or two issues. That's another piece of advice, I think, along those same lines, as far as you're picking your topics. Stick to one or two issues. There is such a thing as too much information. I know, that's pretty much how I teach. And... Um, <laughs> And that's fine. I think teaching is one thing, but in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I do not even attempt to unload this much content on anybody one-on-one. -on -one. No way. They will. It just simply is not going to happen. So I say if it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation, realize five minutes after they walk away, how much of this can they remember? Just realistically. And how much of this are they able to actually process? So I say stick to one or two issues. And though they may say something really big like, well, you know, Martin Luther wasn't really all that great guy. He did this and he did that. But I'm over here trying to talk about salvation by grace alone through faith alone, apart from works. And they're like, well, Martin Luther. And I'll be like, okay, Martin Luther, let's talk about this some other time. So anyways, and I just get back on the topic. I, I'm not even going to fight him on it. I don't have to disprove everything that comes my way. I just want to go, what of all the stuff that they're saying has to do with the thing we're actually talking about? And just stick to that. And don't even worry about it. Um, if someone throws the kitchen sink at you and they just start, you know, like everything in the kitchen sink, so to speak, you just go, okay, that's a lot of stuff. And we can definitely talk about all that. But for now, can we stick to what we started talking about, which was this? And usually they're more than happy to do this. People who throw 15, 20 different things at you aren't really committed to the 15, 20 things. Well, you find out when you actually refute 15 or 20 of them, three hours later, they're like, well, I don't even believe that anyways. And you're like, what? Ah! You know, <laughs> I spent all that time and I Googled this and I called my pastor and I got the Bible out and read 16 of the books and you don't even care. Just stick to one or two issues and then you can always approach them later and, and have further conversation. Um, I think that that's a great way to do it. Pick, a, pick an important issue, stick to it. Don't let them distract you. Avoid the foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. People will tend to move off to sort of pull you off topic from that really important issue onto some fringe issue they feel more comfortable with. Well, you know, the Protestant church has so many different denominations. And you're like, how does that have to do with how you get saved? Like, can we just talk about how you get saved? Protestant, can we talk about that later? Well, you're right, there's lots of denominations. Okay, can we talk about that later? Now, it's a distortion that there's all these, it's like, I've heard there's 44,000 denominations. I'm like, really? That's pretty stinking impressive. Like, and we all disagree on everything? Are there 44,000 versions of Christianity? How is it that all the Christians I meet have the same basic beliefs, pretty much, um, you know, for the most part? And so um, it's obviously distortion. But why bother spending all that time on it? Um, as we continue in 2 Timothy 23, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 24, excuse me. It says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So I'm to avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing it only, it only generates strife. It doesn't produce any good fruit. And I'm not to quarrel. To quarrel means to be in like that sort of petty argument. You know, the back and forth, the back and forth. If someone swings at you 
with a wide swing about attacking you or Christians or da 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 da, and you respond with gentleness and humility and careful reasoning, that is powerful. That is powerful. Not only to that person, but to anyone else who happens to be overhearing that conversation. Huh? It's uh, hard to do. You have, it's a learned skill. It is a learned skill because it is a spiritual quality that we have. And start practicing it now and start praying for it now. And if you are angry, slow down, come back to it later. When I respond in anger, I always do it wrong. When I'm angry and I close the door, I just I slam it. I don't close it. When I'm angry and I say something, I yell it. I don't say it. It's like when you're angry, you will tend to say it wrong and do it wrong. Um, not that it's not right to be angry about certain issues. I'm just talking about in your anger, do not sin. You know, so I don't want to misrepresent the Lord. So the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. So watch your attitude. Oh, please watch your attitude. Too often, the only Christian that's willing to stand up and defend Christianity is the one that is angry. Too often, the only Christian who's willing to get on there and respond to that comment on the internet or say something to the people over who they just overheard saying these things is the one who's angry and that's the motive as opposed to missionary motives. And so let, let our motives be right. Let our motives be right. Um, I do need to stand for the, for the gospel, but I don't need to defend it as though it's actually in danger. The person's in danger, not the gospel. So I'm, I'm, I'm reaching out to them because I care for them. So I'm to be gentle to all. I don't quarrel, but I am gentle to all, able to teach, patient. There should just be an overall attitude of gentleness and patience in how I handle and how I deal with people, even if they're just being childish and rude. I can simply decide to end the conversation, but I will not respond with childish rudeness on my own. That is not a biblical thing to do. It's not how we're encouraged to do it here. Um, and be patient, right? In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if, that if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. I want to, in humility, correct them. So, so all this humility and all this humbleness and all this able uh, or patience is still involving correcting and able to teach. So I'm, bringing, I'm, I'm educating, I'm teaching, and I'm bringing correction to them. I'm doing it in humility. What I'm saying here is you're not abdicating from the fight. This is just how you do it. As a Christian, I am not supposed to sit down and shut up. I'm supposed to stand up and speak with kindness and truth and clarity about the things of God. Do you get that? We are not supposed to check out and just abandon the conversation and act like that's spiritual. Rather, I'm supposed to calm myself, be patient, teach them with humility, and try to bring correction. Humility does not mean uncertainty. Humility does not mean, I don't know, Maybe Christianity's totally wrong and the Bible's totally bunk. But, um, but you know, it's what I believe and it's always been good for me. <laughs> you know, like this is not a good example of Christianity here. This is not a biblical perspective to take either. And that sort of like, ah, oh, shucks kind of humility is not going to get you very far. Humility is going to be simply um, putting yourself last in this car. It's not about me. It's not about me defending my position or myself. It's about the truth of God and me coming up and speaking that truth with boldness, but with a kindness that's, that's coupled with it as well. And then also the last piece of advice here is pray. This is not just an intellectual thing. It is also a spiritual battle. It says that God 
perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses, like the lights will turn on, and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. There is a demonic issue going on here for people who are having false beliefs on essential Christian truths. It is a demonic thing. And for that, I need to pray. I need to pray. Pray for them. Pray for yourself. Pray as you're stepping into it. Pray as you're in the middle of it. God hears your very thoughts and your very heart, and I will pray, oh, Lord, give me wisdom. And I can't tell you how many times I'm about to type a comment or about to say something, and I'm just like, you delete, <laughs> or you know, put it in the, in the recycling bin. You know? and, then, and then I go, okay, Lord, okay, I, I know it. I got it. I know what I need to say. This. You know, and it ch I change my perspective. I'm constantly correcting my own self there. Now that we understand the difference between Catholicism and Catholics, the difference between de only defending or only attacking, and also our call that we, we are supposed to evaluate this theology that 1.2 billion people ascribe to and see if it's accurate. And if not, we are to come against the theology for the sake of the people, for the sake of 1.2 billion people. Thanks for thinking biblically with me today. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and next time, we're going to tackle the topic of Roman Catholic claims to have authority. We'll look at those claims and examine the way the Roman Catholic Church tries to justify them. If Roman Catholic authority isn't real, then we have no reason to embrace the extra-biblical teachings it has on things like purgatory, the papacy, the priesthood, indulgences, and on and on. Our goal here is to think biblically. And the Bible says to test all things and hold fast what is good. So we're going to test those claims biblically next time. And until then, don't forget to check the context. <laughs>